Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Alexis Rockman. Alexis is a painter, and he's really known for big paintings that show the effects of environmental destruction. In fact, Hugo gave me a good quote about him that art critic Jerry Sauls described Alexis as a hardcore fantasist realist painter whose beautiful glowing paintings tell the story of death stalking us and our polluted environment lost worlds in the making. So uh, with that incredibly depressing introduction, Alexis, thank you for joining the podcast. Happy to be here. That's my brand. Yeah, exactly. So like, did, did that become your brand or did you consciously sort of say, this is both what I want to get across to people in terms of the specifics of the work and kind of my overall body of work? Well, I started my career in the mid 80s and um as a kid i grew up fascinated by the natural world my mom worked at the museum of natural history and i collected animals but when i went to art school i thought i would be in the film industry and um making probably glorified uh, concept art or production design like hr giger or um uh sid mead or, or a number of other early heroes of mine but when i got to art school, I realized that that's a very tough life. And not to say that being a, a painter isn't a tough life also, but when you can control your own production, it's really a, an incredible thing if you can get away with it. And that means that you get to paint whatever you want. One of the problems and challenges of getting to paint whatever you want is you have to be very self-motivated. And I realized early on that my interest in, um, you know, animals and nature and stuff uh, would be a great, uh, place to start in terms of my painting career. No one else was doing that. And as I um, went along into you know the late 80s or early 90s, I realized that we were in very, very big trouble in terms of uh, the biodiversity crisis. And then, of course, climate change started to sort of seeped onto my desk around 1994 in a conversation with a paleontologist about what he was afraid of. And he explained that to me. And I thought, oh, oh brother, we're probably going to struggle with this because it's invisible and long term and going to be expensive. So that's really the confluence of, you know, needing a project and um, th this love of nature and seeing what the problems are. Got it. And, and um you grew up, though, kind of in the ultimate built environment, right? You grew up in Manhattan, which is like literally the opposite of of nature. Do you think that either made you in some ways more attuned to it because it wasn't what you were used to? Or do you think you had to sort of learn more about it once you left uh, the city? Like, how that work? That's an interesting um, question. I always joke that if I lived in the, the country as a kid, I'd be painting hard ab abstraction. Or right, right. Or something. But um, to be clear, there is a lot of stuff going on in New York City, um, in the East River, in the Central Park ponds. I, I was very aware that there's a whole ecology, raccoons in the park. But I also, my mom being an archaeologist, it was I knew how short the civilization crust was in in New York, and you know it's a, only a couple hundred years old, and that is nothing in terms of the fossil record. So um, there. It's a conflict. Again, it's a number of different factors that probably and also longing to be somewhere else and, you know, loving uh, um, the things that I was painting. And, you know, you mentioned kind of seeing an opening and that people weren't really doing as much around animals and nature when you started doing this in, in, in the 80s. Um, you know, as an artist, you have to, as I, I would guess, both, you know, paint what feels true and right to you, what is intellectually engaging for you. But you also have to eat. Right. And so you have to have some thought around, like, I would imagine in my painting work that people would want to to collect. How do you balance those two things? And like, 
did did you sort of realize when you talked to the paleontologist, like here's an opening for me in the marketplace or was just, oh, I'm even more moved by this. I'm going to paint this. And then society's kind of awareness just came along with you in the right direction. It's, it's, it's really, that's a, that's the $64,000 question. Um, I'm probably not smart enough to be a good business person about that sort of thing. And that's, a, that's um, exactly what an artist who is a good business person would say, but yeah, I've had, oh, I, you know, I, you know, it's, it's a lot like Steven Soderbergh. You try to frame what you're doing, one for the studio, one for you, but you have to do that in every painting and find a way to make tough paintings. You know, I've made plenty of paintings that I certainly wouldn't want to live with and somehow miraculously sold. So I, you can't think about that stuff because you're not, um, you're, you're doomed to uh, mediocrity if you're thinking about the market. Right. That makes sense. So what was that moment both where you knew you wanted to be a painter, but I assume a lot of people have that moment, but the more like, holy shit, um, I can actually do this and I'm going to take, instead of being a dentist or an accountant, I'm going to go for it. Well, it's really more desperation and not having any other options. I so mean, dentistry I'm really school not, was not on the menu? Not a, I, I have no skills. Probably I could do advertising, like sell liquor to children probably, but yeah, um, it's pretty lucrative. You know, yeah. That's, um, you know, at, there's nothing else I could do. And if, if I'm going to give a lecture to kids in high school or whatever, I just say, you know, if you have to do it, do it, but you better be prepared for, you know, the ups and downs of that. And, um, it is no joke. Where do you think, and this may be a little more reflective than, than you expected, but like, <laughs> where do you think your life was ultimately easier and better because you've spent it doing something that truly is meaningful to you? And where do you think it was harder because you pursued a path that is pretty unconventional? I think it's, um, well, since I don't know any better, um, I right. can't say. <laughs> fair, fair point. Yeah. I don't have, I don't have anything to compare it to, but I think of myself now where, and listen, I just want to be very clear. There is never a moment where you feel like, oh, I've made it. You know, I've had people, I've had three survey shows, which is, you know, a, a living retrospective. I've had shows all over the world. I've sold hundreds of paintings, but you just don't, because you're only as good as your next painting, you have to keep, it, it, it really, it's like being an athlete. You have to really be on you're on call constantly, and I never really, I can't take a vacation, really. I'm terrible at it. How does your sort of self-worth impacted by kind of the, the commercial aspect of the business in the sense of it seems possible that you could paint something that you feel great about, and it doesn't resonate with the market for some reason, or vice versa. Like you said, you've painted things that you couldn't imagine people would want to live with, and they bought Again, I've made so many paintings that i loved that struggled to find a home and eventually did and that's generally what happens but um you just you you can't think about it like that because you know one thing that that i want to be clear about and this is very different than other industries a piece of artwork only needs one home it's not like units that you're selling it's not like a movie where you need streaming or butts in the seat or books and stuff like that there, there, I believe that there's a person, it's like romance. There's a person for every painting or art object. You just have to find them. So we, we talked about kind of what motivates your thinking behind the work. And, and you, you made the sort of good Soderbergh point that like if you're painting to the market, you're going to end up just making mediocre work. But then there's a third element also, I guess, that's relevant here, which is because your work is about climate change and the environment, 
how much are you trying to have the work have a broader impact on things? Do you think about that? Um, does like, for example, who collects it matter to you and that they may or may not be able to then do something about climate change? That's a really interesting question. And as my career's developed over the last, say, 20 years, um, I've realized that I kind of have two careers as, a, as an artist and they're, they're, there's a lot of overlap, but I do these very large institutional commissions. One, um, the most recent one is at the Mystic Seaport Museum where it's, it was a commission that will have a permanent place in the museum along with 10 works, very large works on paper. And they asked me to make a painting and, and works on paper using their collection of watercraft as a springboard to tell a story about the ocean. So I thought that is great. I can use their, they have, you know, one of the greatest, it's one of the greatest maritime museums in the world. The work is gonna be permanently on display. It's up there now until April, and then it's gonna travel for a couple of years around the world. And I see these um, public uh, commissions as a type of um, educational, mm -hmm. uh, they get a lot of press, um, they are. They do have an opportunity to be activists. And then the paintings that I don't know if we're going to be having uh, visuals on this podcast or not, but behind me are um, paintings that I'm making, I guess, ostensibly on spec for a show in Europe next, early next year. And these are paintings that I want to make, and they're interesting to me, and they're really about the history of painting language. They happen to have forests and fires in them as well and you know these are much more about the, the history of painting and having a dialogue with art history and stuff like that and what, what's that process like for you i mean do you sort of conceive in your head oh this is what i want to paint and then you go do it or do you kind of just start painting and it evolves and it takes lots and lots of different drafts like what's what has it worked it's very very planned um in terms of its content i think about things for a long time and then I sit down at the computer and I sort of start to piece together what, what I th want the thing to look like to a point where if I go any further, I won't want to make the painting. So I do a very crude sort of um, collage to sort of get to understand where things go in terms of placement and stuff like that. And then I set it aside and start to plan it as a painting. And, you know, the big ones can take a year and the smaller ones like the ones behind me can take a couple of weeks. And, and how much from the process of, okay, you, you finish the work on the computer, you're like, okay, this is what I want to make. When you go back and look, compare the final painting once you're fully satisfied and done to what was on the, I mean, I know the collage is just a, a rough collage, but like even conceptually, how similar is it or how much does it sort of change along the way? It changes because one of the things that I really am interested in in terms of being a painter is, you have to let the materials do something that's interesting to you that you've never seen before. So there's this constant battle. It's a lot like, you know, being, being a uh, basketball player where you have a set play, but you have to do improvisation because the, the play can break down, the defense does something unexpected, and so on. There's a missed shot, a turnover, whatever. So you have to really sort of take advantage of things that happen that are really about chance and opportunities that come from not being able to be completely in control. So, you know, at this point, you are an expert on, on climate change, right, from, from a different perspective than, say, a scientist, but still one. So you've been thinking about this and studying this sounds like for close to 30 years now. Where do you think we are? Are you one of the kind of we're doomed and we're totally fucked? Or is it you think there's technology that will rescue us or something in between? A fool would not be concerned. <laughs> right. Um, I, it depends on the time of day. Um, if it's cocktail hour, it might be different. 
But um, my feeling is that there's degrees of, um, uh, of terror that are headed our way, but we are in big trouble, and um, I'm very concerned. And do you see either changing norms or changing technology um, as a, a potential sort of mitigant solution, or do you think that we have set ourselves on a path that it's just a question of how catastrophic it'll be? I think it's the latter. Um, we're already seeing things that were um, predicted. I, I did a painting over 20 years ago called Manifest Destiny that's now in the Smithsonian. It's a 24-foot-long painting describing what New York City is going to look like after the ice caps melt. And I worked with James Hansen, who was at NASA at that point, who resigned in protest um, during the Bush um, era. Um, Cynthia Rosenzweig and some other scientists that study how climate change is going to affect ecosystems. And everyone that I spoke to said that it was thousands of years out. And the things that we're seeing today, 20 years later, are what people were describing as being, you know, thousands of years out, hundreds of years out. It's happening so much more quickly. And as, as you know, with chemistry, whatever's happening now, the cat, the cat is out of that bag and we're going to have to deal with that. Now, I think our carbon emissions were the most ever last year, so I don't see us really being going in the right direction. So AI feels like it could sort of be either an interesting issue for you or, or, or a problem in one of two different ways, right? So one would be the ability of AI to potentially deal with climate change, right? Do, do we figure out carbon capture through AI in a way that would take us, you know, 50 times as long through traditional methods? And two, um, how do you think about it in terms of being an artist? Do you incorporate it? Do you feel threatened by it? You know, what are you, what's your take on it? All of the above. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's super exciting, but I think that, um, you know, as we've learned from the internet, it didn't make, you know, uh, the world closer, did it? So I think that there's, you know, uh, terrifying implications. It's, and it's our only hope at the same time. Um, do you use AI or will you think about using it? Or, or when you do your collages, does it help you kind of get to that right place? No. And I, I've been overjoyed by asking AI questions about myself and how knowledgeable it happens to be about my career. And that appeals to my vanity. But I've also <laughs> asked it to make, make work in the style of dot, dot, dot. Right. And it's been a preposterous, terrible joke, which is what a relief, right? But I think that's a matter of time. I don't, you know, one of the things that I'm very lucky in that I make objects that are, you know, unique. And the fact that it's physical is very important to them as a commodity. That is the commodity. Right. So, you, you're about as protected as it gets, right? And I'm sure there's all sorts of ways I'm going to suffer that I can't imagine. Um, yeah, ho ho <laughs> hopefully some of that won't be till a little later on. Um, how should, so the average person that listens to this podcast is someone who works in tech or in politics. Um, you know, probably a lot of them, you know, like looking at art one way or another, but, you know, not that knowledge about the art market. How should your normal sort of intelligent thinking person think about the art market today? Well, if I, if I knew that answer, um, I'd, you know, I'd be a different type of artist. But I think that I am starting, well, let me put it to you this way. Over the last couple of years, I've made a big um, uh, push to trade with some of my favorite artists who happen to uh, be friends or acquaintances. And I just buy, I buy, I trade my work for their work and I just get what I like. And I don't care what it's doing in the market. Um, I don't care. I don't know how much it is most of the time. 
It's basically, I'll give you this work on paper for that work on paper. It doesn't have to be the same size, but that's the way, it, that's what I do. And I can't, I'm, I'm not interested in it as an investment. And should, should people look at it overall, just in terms of, is it a, it feels like a market that has sort of no integrity to it whatsoever, in part because it is so abstract and sort of intangible. Um, is that your view, or do you think there's more kind of un underlining and underpinnings of the art market than that? Well, first of all, the art market's completely unregulated, and it's a place where, um, let's just say, people that you wouldn't want to hang out with uh, park their money and um, you know, bless their hearts, so to speak, because I'm part of this system that gives value to things that are completely, um, uh, it's, in, it's intangible and impossible to, to value because it's so much about subjectivity. But I think that um, if, you, if you wanna buy art and love art, God bless you. So, so there was a, I don't know, did you really happen to read the profile of Larry Gagosian in The New Yorker a couple months ago? Yeah, I was talking to him the other day. Interesting, so Hugo and I had talked about it on the podcast and part of our conclusion was, we would not want to hang out with him, right? Based on, now you, you may, it sounds like, have a different view, but it's almost interesting that the people who buy the work are not the people that the artists would want to hang out with. And in some ways, I wonder if that inherent rejection is necessary to make the buyers really want it. I mean, you're trying to create scarcity and mystique. And one of the things about that profile on Larry is that he was, he's been very, very cagey in terms of having people write about him. He never gives interviews until this and i'll tell you one thing there was nothing in that article that i didn't already know he had a big i, I don't care the person that wrote that um profile doesn't didn't know anything about the art industry and really bungled it and larry managed to get away pretty scot-free <laughs> what what if you if you feel comfortable saying it what would be the thing that you thought the writer should have known about and put in there he didn't really ask anyone tough questions, and he didn't explain how his system works because no one understands his model. He's so huge in terms of what does he have? 19 galleries around the world. I haven't counted recently. No one understands how this huge volume of business is getting done and what's happening behind the scenes. Do you think there should be regulation of the art market? I, I am not in a position to say because that's probably, but you know. What, so, as as an someone on the the supply side of it, what do you feel is the most unfair or problematic? That's an interesting question. I don't think I'm qualified to to answer that right now because um, I'd have to give that some serious thought. But that's interesting. All right. So let's turn to New York City. You, know, you, you grew up here. You spend still spent some of your time here. Um, how has the art world in New York changed? And is it from on a relative basis to say the 80s, the 90s, early 2000s, is it better today, worse today, just different? How do you think about it? Well, like everything else in New York, it's now very corporate. Yeah. And, you know, the, the New York that I remember, which is basically taxi driver, <laughs> um, no long, I mean, there are parts of it that, that feel that have a continuity with my history. But, you know, Orchard Street is a place I grew up going to, and I was, you know, pretty terrified to walk down the street in the 70s there. So um, I, it's huge compared to what it was. It's, it's just, it's almost like a different beast. And um, do I think it's better? It's probably better for someone like me 
but it's, I think it's very hard for young artists because what happens is if you don't, you get embraced by some of these galleries that will chew you up and spit you out after five years. There's a system that is really brutal. And it's a lot like being a professional athlete. You know, you could end up playing in Europe if you're lucky. I mean, that's a metaphor, obviously. Um, after a couple of years and an injury or two later. Uh, on the viewer side, if someone said to you, like, okay, Alexis, I'm, you know, coming either, I, I've never been to New York, I'm coming for a week, or it's, you know, uh, I come to New York all the time, but I feel like I only see the obvious stuff. What would you recommend they go look at? That's a really good question. Um, I, you know, have a combination of going to the, first of all, do, do some homework. Okay. There's many, you know, sites or places where you can, um, see what's going on, look at the major museums and see what shows are happening there. But then again, so many of the better shows are not in New York because everyone's fighting over real estate and it really becomes the lowest common denominator in New York. It's basically a popularity and power contest in New York. Some, there are great artists you've never heard of that have shows somewhere in the Midwest and there are great museums there and those shows are far more interesting. Because the, the cost stuff. and stakes are too high here to take risk? There's too many egos that are fighting over real estate in the museums and the trustees and the power brokers that often it's the least interesting things that happen in New York. Got it. So I want to pivot something you just mentioned before, which is sports. So Hugo said something about you that was really fascinating. I want to see if you can explain it better, which is that you can diagnose people's psychological problems by how they dribble and shoot a jump shot. Is that true? I, well, I'm, I'm not qualified to, <laughs> I'm not a certified psychoanalyst, but I think you can learn a lot about people's personalities from how they play against you and with you so yeah absolutely all right so give me like what's the personality like, what, when you play do you play regularly still i played yesterday okay so like <laughs> what would someone be doing if you're playing with you? like this is a fucked up person i definitely don't want to get a beer with them after the game what, what what's the like what, what would someone's style of play be where you're like okay you know well, no, no more with this guy making it could be you know overly aggressive Stupid this shots, a low IQ, a, you know, just like a head case. Got it. But not so much like that their form is that they release the ball at the top of the... Man, I, who am I, what am I to say at this point? Right. But let me be clear. You know, I'm 61 years old. I've had 11 surgeries related to basketball. And, and you, I, it never occurs to you to stop playing? No. Okay. <laughs> I, I just want to say for the, a moment that Alexis is being a little too modest. Every time I play basketball with him, he hyper analyzes what I'm doing with my like elbow and, and, and attributes it to some kind of personality flaw. Um, like if my elbow pops out, Hugo, you have no personality. For <laughs> so based on your, you're an avid Knicks fan. Um, I am a Knicks fan now because my uh, good friend and high school teammate, we were co-captains of our high school, uh, team is an assistant coach on the Knicks and oh cool who I, is it uh Andy Greer nice and um you know I like their system I like their relationship the 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 um the uh the coaching staff and Dolan has left them alone much to his credit if he gets any credit ever um and uh I you know I I can't stand Dolan but I'm sympathetic to the Knicks right now so based on what you've seen and based on at least Hugo's view that you are capable of assessing people's personalities through their play. What player of the Knicks, just in watching him, would say, that's someone that I really want to hang out with? Oh, that's a funny question. Um, 
Jalen Brunson, I don't know. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. But, but, that, but he's so likable that, like, you know, it feels like there's a million factors why, as opposed to, like, you know, the way that Josh Hart goes up for a rebound tells you that he has, you know, uh, you know, real empathy and compassion or whatever. You know, can I just circle back to something? Yeah. Which I hate that phrase. So let me go back to something Hugo said. You know, I, I have to take a slight exception to what he said about my relationship to um, psychology and basketball. I would say this. If you don't learn from your mistakes or get better in, in terms of what's possible for you, in terms of your basketball IQ and what's what's uh, possible in terms of your physicality, then I think that's a that's a problem, and that's something I can learn from psychologically if, in terms of my analyzing their personality. If if you get better, then that's if I say to Hugo, you know, your elbow's out, and he puts it in, then that's also reveals a lot about what you know he's willing to do he's and very how, pliable yeah. yeah he's coachable it's <laughs> a nice way to put it hey Alex, how do people learn more about your work um they can go on my website i just did a ted talk a couple of months ago that's um really talks about my childhood and has pictures of me as a kid and talks about my um recent projects and stuff like that so there's tons of stuff out what, there. what's the website address alexisrockman.net. There we go. All right, Alexis, thanks for joining us. Of course, thank you. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.